Welcome to Designing the Robot Revolution. When we talk about automation, we can mean many different things. It can be using AI to automate things such as transcribing text or even creating art, as we've seen recently with Dolly. But when we talk about automation, many people think about factories and heavy machines doing heavy and repetitive things very quickly. Me and David discussed automation, as we do, and we realized that even though we're working with automation, we don't know that much about this version of automation using industrial robots in factories. So we thought we'd call out one of our friends, Matthias, that works at Toyota Materials Handling and ask him. This was meant to be a short call where we would just ask a couple of questions, but it turned out to be an exciting conversation around automated guided vehicles and logistics and how to design systems where both humans and machines can coexist. Enjoy. I, I remember coming to my first um, customer meeting and it was about like, how can we take this? T- uh, th- that was like a welding device. How can you take this welding device and connect it somehow and extract the data? And it was a very technically driven discussion with this client that wanted the, this firm I was working at to help them with the embedded technology. And I was just accompanying that meeting um, just to, to listen in and understand. And I was asking the only question nobody was asking, why? Why should we connect it? Well, and the client got a little bit like surprised and, well, we don't know yet. I mean, we we're, think we could upload uh, drivers, etc., remotely. That could be something maybe not so much value, but we'll, we'll come to value later. Really, the challenge then, it was, why? Why? Why should you do it? Where is the value? And, and what should be the methodology to find the value? And, and what I was proposing was, instead of looking at the product, we have to look at the customer instead. What, what are the processes that the customer is using this equipment for? What job is it doing? So this was a welding company. So of course, that their equipment was used for welding. So that was very obvious. And, and, and the customer could explain really what is happening when you weld. So that, that those processes just in front of the product was really obvious to them. But when I started asking questions, yeah, but what happens before then? How did, how did they know what to weld? Then it become, they couldn't answer. And then what happens after the weld? Where does it go? What happens next? We, we mapped out the processes from the, of the life cycle of, of welding in, in general and found that there's a big problem on the customer side in designing welding before you like designing the recipe. How should we weld? Then you execute the weld and then you need to follow up the, the quality of the weld. If we can follow up the result of the quality and, and get the digital feedback loop of that somehow, then we can connect these three process steps with digitalization. So digitalization was only an enabler. That could have been an enabler for just uploading drivers, but instead it could be an, an enabler for securing quality, driving efficiency, etc. And, and what's your current role now, Matthias? What, what are you working on at the moment? At the moment, now I'm I'm working as a, a director of product management and sales support at the Toyota Materials Handling uh, Logistics Solutions. So we do AGVs, and AGVs is 
basically trucks, you know, like forklifts can lift pallets up and move them around. And this is an area that is mainly today uh, manual. So the whole industry is mostly moving around with like manual forklifts, but that will be automated. Just like cars will go, uh, be automated, they will be automated. And this will be a long process and there will be several intermediate steps. At the moment, um, most of them are are, in, are AGVs. That what does AGV stand for? Automated Guided Vehicle. And I'm going to do the same to you as what you did on that project. Why? Why are they going to become autonomous? Why are they going to be autonomous? Well, it, automation is driven by different things in different industries. Um, you can drive uh, automation because you want more quality or because work is dull, dangerous, or dirty, or uh, something else. But in, in logistics, it's very much driven. Uh, you might think it's just driven by costs, but it's not. I mean, you can get a really good return on investment if you if you take out people out of the picture, but it's actually driven a lot by the lack of, of skilled people. How, like, are, are these AGVs, are they in, 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 in production facilities or in logistics centers or where is the, where are they mainly used? You have automation in, in all all places where you need to move things from A to B. I mean, the, it, the automation field is, is is really wide. You have it in like in an Amazon warehouse. Uh, you might have something called, uh, you have picking operations where people pick things to an order. And then you can have like something really small that looks like a Romba vacuum cleaner kind of on the floor. It will go under a shelf, lift the shelf up and bring it to a picker. So the goods come to you. But then on the other side of it, you have automation in um, in a factory where you have finished goods and it needs to go from the belt into uh, some uh, uh, onto a pallet and and uh, stacked somewhere and waiting for a lorry to t- pick it up and go away. So automation is uh, with AGVs or or a- AMRs um, uh, are used in a lot of different places. When I've seen robots in live action, which was a, a, a while ago, but still, uh, they're often in cages mm. far away from people because they're going to murder you if you're not careful. Um, well, how how does that work with the AGVs if they are actually with together with people? Um, that's that's fascinating. That's a really cool. Yeah, and that, there's a revolution in uh, what's called uh, um, collabor- collaborative robotics, um, where, and exactly like you said, it's robotics has, is going through phases. And one phase that's been going on for a long time is that uh, robots are dangerous. You paint them bright orange, and uh, you keep them in a, a cage. And and to go into that cage, it's like going. The routine is is as strict as going into a lion. Every worker in a factory, before going into robot, they will have a padlock, a personal padlock with only one key. And when they open the door to go into the robot, they will they will uh, lock the door open, um, and that makes um, it impossible to turn the robot on with their own padlock. And if a second person is going in, they will add their own personal padlock to that. So that now you have two padlocks. 
So if the first person goes out, take off their padlock, you still can't reset the machines. Very, very strict because they are, like you say, very dangerous. If if uh, if you are inside of a cell when a robot takes off, it's it's bad news. If the first person wants to go out and takes off their padlock, they're not going to be able to restart the machine because you, you still have a padlock there. That's a level of security. You don't even have a second spare key. And, and that's that's a phase that we are leaving now. Now we're going into a collaborative phase. So those companies, and you will see this uh, throughout different industries, they, w- they are starting to repaint their machines. So the company that used to have like bright orange, like ABB, for instance, they had like bright orange, uh, dangerous paint on, on their robots. Then I'm going for white paint instead. These are not anymore s- uh, supposed to be seen as dangerous. So collaborative robotics means that that you, with measures, make sure that the robot cannot harm a person, that you can work next to each other. Um, like, for instance, there are, um, there are examples where, like in Chinese factories where they're working on cell phones, etc. Different. You have a lot of workers working um, on a line, and, and they're struggling to get people, enough people there, enough skilled people to execute these tasks the idea of the collaborative robotics was that you should be able to fill that gap. Here in this space used to be a worker. Now we put a robot there next to the other workers, executing the same things together with with other people. But I mean, that concept has grown into like, yeah, but now we can do things together. The robot holds on to something that uh, I'm fiddling with as a human. And or I'm holding on to something. The robot is doing something to it. So co- collaboration is like growing more and more. How are people reacting to to working alongside robots? Well, um, I mean, the biggest challenge I think is not that that people don't want to be close to to robots. Uh, it's more that collaborate uh, collaborative robots is a trade off. I mean, a big. If you have the lion behind the cages, you can have a fierce lion that is working so fast that you don't even see it with your eye when it's moving around. That high speed, but it's still so strong it can lift a car. That that behavior, you have to trade away. You can't be that strong and that fast near a person. So then then you will have to find new jobs because it... You need to find a job that it pays off being near a person. So now you have new areas like laboratories, uh, for instance, uh, doing laboratory tests. Okay, you don't need to be strong and you don't need to be that super fast. You just need to be precise and be able to work near people. If you just substitute a person for something collaborative, then the only gain is that you, you take away a person. You, um, you just assume that the robot is cheaper. But ideally, you want to have one plus one is, is three, that a person collaborating with a robot is more than two people or two robots. That's where, where you really get a good value. And that's hard because you need to rethink how you create value then. Um, you need to rethink the whole flow. This is something I was seeing now in warehouses, for instance, that... Um, that you have, you used to have when you have manual forklifts that you move something from from where it comes out of the truck and you want to put it up on a shelf somewhere. That you have two jobs. So you have you first you take it and you move it to a parking lot and uh, with a cheap uh, truck. 
And then another uh, forklift that is a little bit more expensive because it can lift really high. It comes to the parking lot, it picks a thing and lifts it up really high. Um, but of course, that creates like uh, waste because you now you're piling up with stuff in a parking lot somewhere and and this is not completely like synchronized. But then with digitalization, if you have these as, um, as uh, different AGVs uh, that are is orchestrated by one system, then it can be one flow. One thing picking something up and almost like in football, you make a pass. The midfielder is passing to the forward and the forward scores. That it becomes like one flow. And, and that is what's also hard to do because you, ne- you can't just substitute things with something else. You need to rethink uh, the pro- business processes. So I imagine that one plus one equals three sounds really appealing, but how do you actually, what, practically, how does a business get to achieving that you need to rethink the system how is how is the system going to be designed so that it's not 100 components but one machine so the challenge here is to make that system of small islands and and small individual machines to work um in one to execute one play or one music uh, together in, in a way that creates minimum loss and that's really hard because typically you have somebody designing the cell, but that somebody is not designing the whole factory plant, for instance, or the whole flow of everything. So this, this is a big challenge. So to summarize what we've been talking about so far, industrial robots are becoming more collaborative and able to work together with humans without killing us. Also, we shouldn't think of a robot as a way to replace a person. If we insert a robot into our workflow, then it should do something that creates more value than just training another person. This was all fascinating, but we wanted to ask Matthias, how do you think when you design these systems? How do you make sure that you create the best systems for all your stakeholders and make sure that when you automate something, you do it in a way that is value-adding? In short, how do you make automation really good? What is good there? Is 90% efficiency good? Or, or, or is good the way you work to get better? How do you use... How do you create a, um, a learning loop in, uh, in an efficient way to get, get ahead of the competition? And that's, that's typically really hard um, because, um, the, because the system is so fragmented in, in a factory. It's, uh, for instance, take, um, I was in, in one factory where they had a gluing problem. So at regular intervals, they had a mess of glue and a robot was dispensing the glue. And they, so they called the gluing equipment provider. They came there, they spent a few days in the factory, like just extracting all the data from the gluing equipment. And they could conclude eventually, the reason why there's a gluing problem is that, uh, that uh, when the robot stops suddenly, the gluing equipment it takes a little bit of time for it to kind of slow down. So it will like continue to dispense glue and then you get a big gluing blob. Okay, great. Why did it stop? Oh, we don't know. 
We just have the time codes. Yeah, but 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 the, the it must have been a command to stop uh, the robot. Yeah, but that's in a separate data set. That's not from the gluing equipment. That's in, in the robot data. And we didn't record that because that's not our thing. I mean, it, it, they didn't have access to it. You need to figure out a way to to collect the data from all these different places in a synchronized way. So you can, when they came up with this uh, conclusion, okay, there's a gluing problem at this exact timestamp, and the robot stopped. Why did the robot stop? And be able to to open up a different data set uh, and and, and see, uh, to, to find that root root cause. Often it's like misunderstood that you can just oh just collect all the data, put it in a data lake, and then put AI on it, and then you get the conclusion right. That's not how it works. You have to have domain knowledge. You have to have like when it happens. You have, need to have like when when did we have a certain sickness diagnosed? Okay, this this time, then the system has a chance to look back in the data and draw conclusions. What happened before? Um, but if you don't have, if you have like, oh, it, it happened somewhere 10 o'clock-ish, how would the system be able to learn? Um, so that's often a challenge. Like you, you could have the right domain knowledge in the room uh, and still not be able to solve it because you don't have the data or you don't have the proper annotations. Or you just, or you have all the data, but you don't have the domain knowledge, so you can't draw any conclusions. You have to have all these different parts in the room to be able to to do it. And still, it's quite tedious. Is it feasible to have all the data? Uh, that's also a very good um, comment. I mean, a lot of companies, in my opinion, go into uh, um, IoT or, or Industry 4.0 or data science with the approach that we'll collect all the data. We put all of it in a data lake. And yeah, then we start to figuring out what to use it for afterwards. But first, just make sure we collect everything. And and in my opinion, uh, uh, it might be an unfair analogy, but it, I'm usually I say like, oh yeah, that's great. I I try to take a backup of internet because I would have like really good loading times, right? And it's a little bit the same way. Another analogy is yeah, I could take uh, I could have all the data of the Earth. I just go to the moon, take one photograph of the moon. I'll have everything there. It's all in the picture, right? Yeah, but it's. Uh, you couldn't draw a conclusion, how big is my yard on that photo, right? Because it doesn't have the right resolution. So what is the right re- uh, resolution? Remember the gluing problem I talked to uh, you about before. Viscosity in that case. Viscosity is like how how much, how much thick is something, uh, fluid? How thick is it? Is it like water or more like syrup or whatever? Viscosity is something you, in that case, would have to sample every... 20 milliseconds to have good data. But uh, when I asked them, at at what sample rate would you not see anything in the data anymore? 50 milliseconds. But then you have other types of data where it might be enough that you have it sampled once a day or once an hour or once a minute. That's what you need to take a photo of. So will you take it from the moon and like sample it every, say, that's like sampling it every hour. 
or will you need be, need to be like really close up with the camera and take a, a close up photo of, of the variables, like taking one every millisecond or every five milliseconds? That would be massively different um, use cases for for the data that's coming out of that, uh, and e- and on top of that, just how high a resolution you have on it, um, yeah, then you need to make make it user friendly. What does do underscore IO mean? Um, well, it means door open. Okay, that's a that's a, a very important piece of information you need to add to that photo of that that data that, okay, this variable means this and is used for this domain. Um, so all that needs to go together. If you don't have that, then you can't really do anything with the data. Then you basically have a photo of, of the planet that you could, yeah, it feels good. Everything, <laughs> I've collected everything, but I can't use it. Um, what, when you, when you look at, um, the potential for um, what automation could be in in logistics or um, manufacturing. Where 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 do you see us being in kind of twenty years time, as opposed to like what's in the immediate short term future? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question, and the answer will be different in different domains, of course. But I think in in logistics, um, I think uh, we will, um, in some cases, we'll have like really high density storage instead of like you have aisles uh, where where you have trucks that move and you have a lot of space in between. It will be more be like a really dense cube that you somehow can fish out exactly what you want out of it uh, at all times. Just by, you know, you've seen a kid playing Rubik's Cube if they're really good. That's really fast. Somehow the machine is doing that and somehow manages to fish out exactly what you want at all times in an efficient way. Yeah, probably that's a component of it that you have like a really, really high density storage that's still efficient flow in and out. Um, in, when it comes to manufacturing, like uh, concepts like you can decentralize things much more that I've seen concepts where you ship a container, uh, uh, like a factory in a box, kind of to an electronics factory you have in a in a 20 foot container you have a factory with collaborative robots inside of it that can produce a certain component and um, component so you just produce it on demand where it's needed instead of, of producing everything centrally then shipping it those kind of concepts we'll probably see more of i think we'll see automation coming in in new areas like in restaurants etc that we haven't really seen so much yet some of the like really big uh, areas like automotive industry where you produce things in like first you make a body body of the car and then you paint it and then you do the final trim and assembly very manually maybe that will shift dramatically like Elon Musk has is you know have you seen this really ugly uh, car um, uh, what's the name of it the truck that got loads of grief with the uh, the really ugly van type thing. That, yeah, 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 but but that's like rethinking the whole process. Instead of doing all those steps, like first buckling uh, it, then welding it together, then painting it, then doing f- final trim and assembly, essentially they make the whole box, like you make a cardboard bo- box, 
you just take the sheets of metal in stainless steel, fold them into a car, you're done. Hmm. Because you don't need to paint it. It's stainless steel, right? So they just took out like uh, uh, three quarters of the whole automotive assembly. You only have like final trim and assembly left. Um, that, That type of rethinking in manufacturing will be very interesting to see. Are you excited about the near future when it comes to? When it comes to what? All of this. And All with of this. Automation uh, and robotics. Well, the future is always very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when it comes to robotics, yes, I am. Yeah, it's quite um, interesting to see how the old uh, like uh, production line is about to change. Like we've been living in something very close to Henry Ford. Since like the 1920s, the production line looks a lot like the same way. It's just robots doing what people used to do. We just substituted people with robots, but it hasn't really been rethought. And now we're in a position where maybe it's not a straight line, the production line anymore. Maybe it's more like islands that you have something uh, go uh, that you have a lot of parts from a Lego box somehow that ends up Lego pieces onto um, an AGV or um, or uh, automated guided vehicle that just drives in a unique flow through the, um, different stations and ends up with a unique product at the end. Um, and this this will be quite interesting. Uh, like when you start really doing things unique for every customer. Where I'm now, I, I chose to leave robotics to go to uh, to logistics because it's still not that automated. I mean, most logistics flows are still manual, and that's really exciting to be able to see like that going from low automation to high automation. That's very exciting. So, if you if you were to make a guess, you did robotics. Now you're in logistics, uh, manufacturing logistics. What's the next frontier for automation? What's where will automation go next after yeah. logistics? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, automation will go everywhere. Everywhere that it doesn't make sense for a person to do it for some special reason. Like, I guess people will more and more focus on stuff that makes us humane like creativity being personal intimacy etc that that stuff is hard to automate right i mean you will see cute robots coming out as toys every now and then but it's not like we give up on pets right it's it's not it's not that convincing um so there's a lot of jobs that can't be automated that makes us human but everything else is up up for grabs if you can make it more efficiently uh, with automation well it makes sense Get, it frees up time for the stuff that makes us more human so um, as long as it makes financially sense it will be automated robotics in manufacturing and logistics are setting the standards for how automation should be done when we go out in the wider world Looking at these highly automated systems will give us valuable insights in the coming years as we go on to automate more and more things in our society. 
This has been Designing the Robot Revolution with me, Jacob Magnell, and my co-host, David Griffith-Jones. If you want to support our podcast, the best thing you can do is show an episode that you really like to a friend that you think would like the episode as well. If you don't want to miss an episode of Designing the Robot Revolution, don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And as always, have a great day.